you have your copy of God's Word, I ask you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to continue our, our study, but while you're turning there, I just want to say, uh, for those of you who may not have been here last week, you probably noticed we have a new worship guide. Uh, and for many of you, your studious note-takers that you are, you'll notice that there are uh, no longer lines available for you to take notes on. And for that, I want to say I'm sorry. Uh, but I'm not really that sorry because I have some journals on the way, but they're just not here yet. So thank you for your patience. They'll be here in the next week or so, we, along with some other surprises that are going to be very nice, I think, for the coming days here at Capshaw. We're going to have a bookshelf uh, with recommended reading uh, from your pastors here um, that I think you're going to be stirred and edified by, um, by that reading list that we plan on giving and supplying for you, just selling books at cost. But uh, there you'll also be able to find the small journals where you can take notes, sermon notes, and keep them all together uh, for, you, for, um, for you. So as you're turning 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, I also want to say, too, uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to preach, uh, to open up God's Word with you today. We want to be praying for Pastor John his family as they are on a planned and much-needed rest and recovery, some R&R. Uh, and so be praying for him this morning. Uh, th- this past week, they've been able to kind of unplug for a little bit. Uh, it's always good for that to happen. Hey, God has shown us an unmeasurable amount of favor in bringing him here. Um, a man who uh, knows the word of God, has a deep conviction for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and is a great communicator. And so, one, you should thank the Lord for Pastor John, but thank the Lord ultimately for the work of the gospel in his life to bring him to the convictions that he has and the passions that he has to open up the word of God. And last, the last couple weeks, he's opened up the word for us, and we've begun this new series called The Good Confession, where the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a young Timothy a ministry protege, a spiritual child in the faith. And he's writing this letter in order to encourage Timothy to, uh, because he is pastoring a church in Ephesus that he, that he had planted several years earlier. And Paul began his instruction in verses 3 and 4. He began this instruction by calling Timothy to deal with a false Teaching for the, with the false teachers and the false gospels that they have, the false teachings. And this falsehood that he addresses in verses 5 through 7 was destroying the faith and Christian witness of many. And there were false teachers leading to false converts. In this case, turning away from the gospel and turning back to the law. And, and Paul writes There in verses 8 through 10, that these teachings, that their teaching is not only inappropriate, but is being applied to the wrong audience altogether. They were misusing it and misapplying the law. In fact, in a way that was contrary, notice verses 10 and 11 is contrary to the sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, in verse 11, when Paul mentions, this is where Pastor John left off last week, when the Apostle Paul, just the the mention of this 
glorious gospel of the blessed God which he had entrusted to him, the very mention of the gospel seems to cause a certain effect on him. It causes him to shift his focus a bit, to digress almost. And I think we've all experienced this, I, this understanding of what it means to digress. I mean, just the other day, um, I was having dinner with some, with some folks here at Capshaw um, uh, on July 4th. We were all sitting around the table. We began by uh, talking about a few weeks ago, I was at my parents' house. We don't own a scale at our house. But a few weeks ago, I stepped on the scale and I was like, whoa. Uh, I've been pretty dormant since I got out of the Army in 2016. And I, began, I just got really motivated by seeing that number on the scale. And so we were telling this story and we're talking about the, the exercise um, uh, commitment I've kind of made right now just to, just to work and exercise. And that conversation began to progress. And progress to a conversation that's not appropriate for me to even say here from this stage. Uh, but, but, but we began to just laugh at like, how did we end up talking about this? I think we all know what this is like. Maybe you've watched a, a YouTube video before and you were watching a YouTube video or maybe a Facebook video and you're watching this video and it's, it may be applicable to someone that you know or someone that's close to you. And, and three or four videos later, you're watching stupid cat videos. You know what I mean? Like you just digress into this new subject. And as Paul is charging Timothy to focus on the gospel of glory in verse 11, he began to reflect on the work of the gospel in his own life. A reflection that, that calls him to temporarily digress from his line of thought. However, this wasn't a time-wasting digression. It, it wasn't just frivolous speech. It was thoughtful. It was methodical. It was purposeful. Now, this digression was inspired. It was for encouragement to Timothy and his personal edification and his four hours as well. So, 1 Timothy. We'll read the passage and we'll work our way through it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand and honor the reading of the Word of God. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Oh God, our Father, we, we open 
your word right now, understanding that, that you have a word for us. God, I pray that, that I might decrease, you might increase, the gospel would be explicit, and that we might not be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what we cannot see. Give us ears to hear what we cannot hear. And give us a mind to comprehend what we cannot comprehend on our own. God, we need your spirit. I need your spirit. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Three truths. Three truths I want to pull from this passage, and I'm going to take my seat, okay? Three truths. I'm going to take my seat. First thing I want you to see in this passage is that reflection on God's glorious gospel will produce unending thankfulness for God and his glorious gospel. Reflection on God's glorious gospel will produce unending thankfulness for God and his glorious gospel. Notice how this passage begins. It begins with thanksgiving. It is an outpouring of gratitude. The the simple mention of the glorious gospel in verse 11 causes him to immediately express his thankfulness to God who saved him and called him into ministry, who made him faithful. However, the Apostle Paul was not always like this. There was a time in his life that the mention of Jesus Christ in the gospel would have evoked a different type of emotion. Just last night, Sarah and I... We're on a little date, and on our way back, we were listening to music from my past, or just from years past. And I think we all know what this is like. Maybe you have some songs from a long time ago. You listen to them, and it takes you back. It takes you back to the old car that you used to drive in, the friends that you used to hang out with. It takes you back to another day, another time. The same thing is happening to Paul. Verse 13, he's thinking about the gospel and he's giving thanks to the gospel and he's reminded of who he once was. Verse 13, though formerly he was a blasphemer, he was one who slandered God and opposed God. He was a persecutor, one who organized attacks on the very church of God, the very people of God. He was an insolent opponent, a violent man. He was Brutal, having people imprisoned and perhaps killed for their faith in Christ. He was an anti-Christian. He was an anti-Christian church terrorist. And the book of Acts unfolds this for us. And I think it would be helpful for us to, to briefly just look at Paul and to understand the context of which Paul, when he says these things, what is he talking about? What does he mean? So if you you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. The end of Acts chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 54 here in just a second, but Stephen has just preached an incredible sermon. Peter, uh, Stephen, one of the the first uh, deacons of the church, has... uh, and God has empowered him and gifted him with the ability to preach and to teach. And so he's teaching. And he preaches a sermon that, that hits the Jewish, Jewish listeners right in the chest. And verse 54 says that now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. 
I think it's safe to say they were pretty angry at what he was saying, what he was talking about, what he was saying about their religion. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And, they, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's hard to throw rocks with a coat on, right? So you got to take it off so you have better range of motion, so you can throw harder. And they cast him, they cast them down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval of his death. The first time we meet this young man named Saul, he's standing there giving his approval of Stephen's death. Wonder and amazement over the glory of God and the visions of rapture might have been on welling up on the heart of Stephen, but visions of murder and hatred were on the hearts of Saul. It flowed from his soul. It flowed from within. And this wasn't a one-time youthful indiscretion. Just a simple thing that you do in your youth, just one of the stupid things. Many of you men in here, you know what that's like. You've done that. Just stupid things in your youthful age. That, that wasn't what Paul was doing here. This would become Paul's career. He would give his life to it. Look at, while we're there, look at the Acts chapter 8. The beginning of Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved his execution. Talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's a man who is systematic. He went from house to house. He was no weekend. This was no weekend hobby to him. This was no, he was no weekend warrior. This was his life. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, but Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul's creating a position for himself. To be the executor of preserving a monotheistic godhead. Years later, when Paul was arrested in Asia, arrested for being a missionary, for being a proclaimer of the way. In Acts chapter 22, he recalled this period of his life in words that are similar to what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
Acts 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And in Acts chapter 26, when he is before King Agrippa, Paul gives his testimony there as well. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he summarizes what this time in his life was like. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was a blasphemer. Verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is the man who penned 1 Timothy and a large bulk of the New Testament writings that we have. Paul remembered vividly who he once was. Are you often reminded of who you once were if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think this is a pretty healthy practice for Christians. To remember who you once were. To think about, to ask God to expose sin in your life. Paul remembered vividly who he once was. And all throughout his writings, we see he vividly understands his own heart, his own sin tendencies. Even so... The second part of verse 13, he was shown mercy. Mercy. Not getting what he deserved. Paul recognized what he deserved. And what he deserved was to be completely wiped off the map. He recognized he deserved the full force of the wrath of God. He recognized that he deserved God to turn his back on him forever and ever. However, in a dramatic encounter with a living Christ, Paul, was rescued from his unbelief. He was saved from his rebellion. He was shown mercy because he had acted as 1 Timothy, as he tells us here, ignorantly in unbelief. Now, on one level, Paul knew exactly what he had been doing. He had been wreaking violence and even death on the followers of Christ. And he was responsible for that sin. On another level, he was not culpable because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. He was truly ignorant of Jesus' real messianic status. That Jesus was God. That he was the son of God. As a sincere Pharisee, he truly believed that he was serving God by stamping out this false messianic sect called Christian Christians. Paul was not saying that his acting in ignorance and unbelief earned him mercy. Rather, he meant that it did not disqualify him from receiving mercy. His having sinned while in ignorance. In unbelief, it indicates that he had 
not knowingly defied, uh, defied God with uh, what the Old Testament calls um, high hand sins, purposeful defiance. In other words, that he says, I believe Jesus is God, but yet I'm still going to crush it. Right? That's purposeful defiance. In the end, God poured out his grace on Paul. And we dare not miss what Paul is saying here. Do not miss this. He is telling Timothy that he has been saved and called into ministry by grace. By the sheer unmerited favor of God. The one who was God's enemy is called to be his faithful servant. In other words, there is no human logic that can explain how such a man would be appointed to gospel service. How could Christ's enemy become his apostle to the Gentiles? Paul explains that it is all a great demonstration of the infinite redeeming mercy of God in Christ Jesus. The grace of God overflowed for me, he says to Timothy, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice this, grace brings faith and love, not the other way around. Okay? Faith and love don't bring grace. Grace brings faith and love. Where grace abounds, faith and love likewise abound. Hearts like Paul's previously filled with unbelief and now filled with faith. Hearts once filled with hatred are filled with love. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And simply reflecting upon who you once were and what Christ has done for you on your behalf, it should well up in thanksgiving to God and the gospel of our great God. And Paul's reflection on the gospel of grace evoked deep and profound gratitude for God and the glorious gospel of God. Then we see Paul transition his thoughts towards the purpose of his salvation, which leads us to the next truth I want you to see in this text, that there is hope for the worst of sinners. God's grace can reach anybody. There is hope for the worst of sinners and that God's grace can reach anybody. In the midst of that, this incredible text, there is a faithful saying. I want you to notice it for a moment. Verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The saying is trustworthy. That is, what you are to devote yourself to, Timothy. Devote yourself to this. Not, not the false gospels and teachers that we have just addressed in verses 3 and 4. We don't devote ourselves to those things. This, this is what we're going to devote ourselves to. This is what you're going to devote your ministry to. Capsule, this is what we're going to devote our time to. Five times in the pastoral epistles... And nowhere else this little phrase, the saying is trustworthy, appears. Five times. It indicates a familiar statement or saying that had already been developed in the early church. 
It is not something that Paul is saying for the first time, but, but something he is quoting that he knew everyone knew as trustworthy as a trustworthy saying. It seems, though, that, that in the time of the writings of 1 Timothy, which was after Paul's first imprisonment, after he had planted this church in Ephesus, there had already developed a fairly well-articulated theology. There were some creeds and hymns and some faithful sayings, some trustworthy sayings that were really a summary of great, uh, of great truths. Confessional statements. Listen, the Christian movement has always been influenced by confessional statements. And throughout the years, I've heard Baptists say, ignorantly in unbelief, we don't need confessions. We don't need confessions. No, listen, faithful Christian Orthodox Christianity has always been confessional. Baptists have always been confessional. And there are five of these statements, as I said in the pastoral epistles. Two of these five have added to them the second statement, that they, it is worthy or valued to be accepted. And they are summaries of a very key important doctrines which should be believed, should be affirmed, should be accepted as, as wor worthy to be, to be believed, worthy to be approved. And the summary statement here is no doubt a familiar statement to the people of whom Timothy ministers as well as to Timothy himself, which acts as a condensed articulation of the gospel. In fact, one commentator called verse 15 a gospel in miniature. So much truth packed in this one verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Every word is chosen carefully. The church had summarized the gospel in this one brief statement, a statement worthy of belief, trustworthy beyond question. This is the very soul of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says, I'm the worst. Not only did Christ come to save sinners, I'm the worst of sinners. And notice he doesn't say, I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. Listen, saving Christianity never gifts one with a sense of superiority. Okay? It never gifts someone with a with, with this gift of a sense of superiority, that I've got things figured out, that I'm up here, I'm varsity Christian, and everybody else is JV, right? Paul knew what he had been and what he was and what he continued to be in himself if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew. This knowledge even increased with the years as he understood his heart even better than the first. As Pastor John said last week, you want to know if you're growing in your Christian faith? As if 
It's if you're trusting in Christ more today than you did yesterday in light of your own sinfulness. Right? That's how we know. So Christian maturity manifests itself in someone who is increasingly aware of sin in their life, not decreasingly aware of sin in their life. There are ways you're sinning against God now that you don't even recognize. And if you're growing in Christian faith, you're growing in your Christian walk, you'll see things. You're, man, I was sinning 10 years ago in ways I had no idea I was sinning in. And Paul says, Saving faith never gifts anyone with a sense of superiority. And he says, Christ Jesus came to sin to save sinners, sinners just like him. Why? What was the purpose of the grace and mercy that God had shown Paul? Well, look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, the ex-terrorist, is a trophy of the grace of God. Paul is saying, because I'm the worst, I'm the best. Because I'm the worst, I'm the best. God didn't save him merely to get him out of hell or to get him into heaven. Nor did he save him to preach the gospel and to write the epistles. God could have done that with anybody. The purpose of salvation, whether Paul's or ours, is to display God's grace, his power, his patience, and produce true worshipers of God. It is primarily for His glory. Our benefit is simply secondary. And He saved Paul to display His unlimited patience towards sinners. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have never turned away from your sin and self-righteousness where you think you've got things figured out because you're a good guy or a good girl. And you've never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. Believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Then notice the phrase there, the perfect patience of Christ. Right now, as you take your next breath, what you are experiencing is the perfect patience of Christ. He's being patient with you. He's, he's waiting for you. Not passively as if he has no power, but, but graciously, patiently, intentionally. Rather than bringing his judgment upon you for your sin, a judgment that would be just for all of us. He is instead holding back his judgment. And he is instead giving you another moment to repent 
of your sins and to trust in him. Now, now don't misunderstand me here. It doesn't mean he will always be patient. That's, that's not what this means. There is coming a day when the judgment of God will come upon this world and upon everyone who's ever rejected him. No, what he's referring to is that his patience is measured by the depth of Paul's sin. Paul is the worst of sinners, and yet the worst of sinners has received unlimited patience from God. What the text is telling us here is that no one, listen to me, no one is beyond being saved. No one is beyond reconciliation. No one is beyond restoration. No one. This is really good news to anyone who has ever thought, well, God, God, he gave up on me a long time ago. God would not save me. I've, I've hated him. I've, I've turned against him. I've fought with God at every turn in my life. I've, I've lied. I've cheated. I've committed adultery. I've looked at pornography this week. No matter what you've done, if you think you are beyond the mercy of God, hear this. God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him the chief missionary in the church to show his patience to show that he is patient that he loves and that now he is he beckons sinners to believe in him for eternal life to rest in the finished work of Christ alone and not your own ability to do good or to clean yourself up you see when Jesus went to the cross God treated his son as if he was the worst. God made him sin. He made him the worst. Who knew no sin. God made him the worst parts of all of us. And poured sin out on him. And this is how we are able to escape the wrath and the just punishment of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So you see, what Paul is saying, the message that changed me was this. Not that Christ came into the world to teach us, which is what Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and everybody else did. Not that Jesus Christ came into the world to help us save ourselves. Jesus Christ came into the world to save us. Sinners. Jesus Christ came in the, into the world to die in our place. He became the worst so that in him you could become the best. If you are in Christ, God sees you, as Galatians chapter 2 says. 
you are in Christ, God looks at you and he sees not your sinfulness, but he sees Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to you, making you a trophy of grace. You are simply a trophy on the grand trophy case of God. Paul had a deep and personal understanding of this good news. He believed it and he preached it to himself often. He reflected on it regularly and it greatly impacted his life. Listen, listen to Paul's continued response to God's grace in verse 17. How he closes this digression. This reflection on the work and the power of the gospel invokes an outburst of praise and doxology. Listen, the gospel of grace inspires passionate praise to the God of grace. Do you hear me? The gospel of grace, when received, inspires passionate praise to the God of grace. Doxology. If theology is the study of God, and that's very important, then doxology is the response to what we know about God. It's informed praise. It's not mindless singing and hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's informed by something. Paul's theology is informed. Paul's theology informed his doxology. Look at verse 17. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To the king eternal, the God of power and sovereignty over all affairs of men and angels, immortal, eternal beyond the, the riches of death or decay, above all the created order, invisible beyond the constraints of the physical, beyond the approach of humankind, the only God, not only in his supremacy, but his exclusive claim as authority. The foundation of Christian belief that God is to this trustworthy, incomparable, self-existent God who is rich in mercy and love and be honor and glory forever and ever. Now, all of these things that I just talked about and Paul is talking about here, all of these things are true and right and good. However, over the past week, as I've thought about this passage and I've thought about Paul's response here, I've become convinced that Paul did not write this sentence simply to be a systematic theologian. To teach you things about the attributes of God. Though it, it does that. Compiling a list of attributes to describe the character of God. It does that, but I don't think that's the intent of what Paul's getting at here. Rather, he wrote that sentence as someone freshly on the heels of remembering what he was and who he is now because of Christ. And it evokes a tremendous praise of celebration. It's doxology. And I love what John Calvin said in his commentary on this verse. Talking about Paul. He said, his enthusiasm breaks out into his exclamation. Since he could find no words to express his gratitude, these sudden outbursts of Paul's come mainly when the vastness of the subject overpowers him and makes him break off 
what he is saying. For what could be more wonderful than Paul's conversion? At the same time, he admonishes us all by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wandering admiration. This sublime praise of God's grace swallows up all the memory of his former life. How great a deep is the glory of God. Paul is literally blown away by the personal application of the gospel in his own life. The only thing he knows to do at this moment is to exalt the name of Jesus above every other name. Having recounted God's grace, mercy, love, and faithfulness toward himself and all who believe, Paul then burst into praise, offering a personal doxology. His aim was to bring glory and honor to God who had saved him. Paul knew this had to be the primary driving focus in Timothy's ministry at Ephesus. He knew it had to be central. It had to be what they hung their hat on. It was a confession worth trusting. It was something worth believing. Likewise, I believe God is telling us today that the glorious gospel of grace has to be central in our lives. Listen, if we are going to be a people whose worship is pleasing to the Lord, then we have to be a people who make a big deal out of the gospel of grace. Which is why our aim as your pastors is to show and display to you the glorious gospel of grace every time we stand in front of you and teach. Our job is not to burden you with a fresh list of new things to do in order for you to have your best life now. Our job is to show you the beauty of the gospel and to call you to trust in it for your salvation as well as for your sanctification listen to preach the gospel and to see this gospel unleashed to rely upon this gospel to to lean unto upon this gospel with great confidence that god can save the worst of sinners knowing that god can save the worst of sinners it should change the way you pray for your neighbor your neighbor who's in a drunken rage is beating his wife. You shouldn't be saying God could never save that man. God can. So to preach this gospel with great confidence, to see it working in the lives and the hearts of our faith family, oh, if we do this, it should erupt like Mount St. Helens in celebration and praise to God. For all of his eternal and glorious attributes. For all of his greatness and wonder and love. 
may it be, in the ministries and the people of Capshaw. May Jesus and the glorious gospel of grace be big in this place and be big in your life. Let's pray.